Well, good morning. We want to uh, begin this morning by recognizing a couple people before we jump into God's Word for today. The first one is, uh, we started the service this way, but we want to uh, just honor all of the ladies here today on this special day with Mother's Day. Uh, We just want you to know we see you and we value you. We also want to acknowledge the fact that this uh, a day like this can sometimes be a difficult day for you, uh, and so we just want you to know that we see you, uh, and we love you today, and we're, we're glad that you're here, and glad that we get to worship Jesus together. I uh, also want to acknowledge some of our students here at Temple Christian School. I want to acknowledge uh, our ladies' softball team uh, who made it to the Final Four State Playoff this weekend. Congratulations, <laughs> ladies. And I want to acknowledge our young men. Our men's baseball team won state championship yesterday. On the mound to finish that game, our very own Wilson Russell sitting here on the front row praising Jesus today. Proud of you this morning, too. Yeah, so praise God for that. We're excited. Also, I want to acknowledge uh, one other uh, little group of people, and that's our dear dear friends, Walt and Karen Troop. Uh, They've been home for several months on furlough and doing some fundraising efforts for our orphanage in Nigeria, a place of hope, Africa. They had out on Tuesday to go back again, and we want you guys to know that we love you very, very much, and you're going with our blessing and our prayers, and we are cheering you on. Can we just say (laughs) blessings to them this morning? And Walt, a very happy Mother's Day to you as well. Listen, if, you, if you've got 104 kids, you get all the holidays. That's how that works. Um, we are going to uh, land the plane here on this series that ran from Easter Sunday to Mother's Day here called Fully Alive. But I want to get your minds engaged this morning, uh, thinking in, a, in maybe a different way to, to start off the service this morning. What we're doing right now is not necessarily spiritual, but it does have a point. If you'll hang with me for just a minute. Um, I, I want you to think about which is your preference, okay? So what we're going to do, we're going to put two things up on the screen. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand for one or the other. Which do you prefer, right? Are you ready to think a little bit and respond a little bit? We're going to move quick. All right, number one, which do you prefer, Whataburger or In-N-Out? Raise your hand for Whataburger. Let me see your hand. Put your hands down. Raise your hand for In-N-Out. Yes? All right. <laughs> this is a place of worship with no shame unless you picked in and out. Okay, next. We can't, we, we got to move quicker this. Next is hot weather or cold weather. Raise your hand if you prefer hot weather. Let me see your hands. Yes. Put your hands down. How many you prefer cold weather? Yes. Move to Alaska. God bless you. Next is coffee or energy drinks. Prefer... You prefer coffee? Let me see your hand. Yes. You prefer energy drinks? Yes. That's called poison. Okay. (laughs) Next is pancakes or waffles. Raise your hand if you prefer pancakes. Raise your hand if you prefer waffles. Raise your hand if you like both. Amen in the house of the Lord. Why do we only serve one or the other oftentimes? This doesn't make sense. Like on the menu should be both. Can we, can we get a, a, a movement in the house of the Lord? Like where's the restaurant that you can get one of each? Okay. Or Three of each. All right. <laughs> country music. Raise your hand if you love country music. Raise your hand if you despise country music. You can't stand it. That's interesting. There's a lot more hate hands than I thought there would be. I'm with you. Okay. Next is Michael Jordan or LeBron James. Michael Jordan, let me see your hand. Yep. Okay. LeBron James. All right, we're going to have to have an old-fashioned altar call. Some of y'all need Jesus. 
Did, did anybody over the age of 30 just raise your hand for LeBron James? Right? Really? Oh, Lewis, we're going to have to talk later. All right. Dr. Pepper or Coca-Cola? Raise your hand for DP. Where are we at? Dr. Pepper. Okay. Coca-Cola? Okay. Yeah. Neither? Okay. There's you. All right. Last, but certainly not least. (laughs) Raise your hand if you prefer Apple. Yeah. There's God's people. Raise your hand if you prefer Android. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody tell them it's 2023. They don't even know what year it is. All right. Thank you for your engagement and involvement. I don't want a verbal or physical answer to this question. Why? Many of us had very strong opinions just then about our preference, right? I'm not even going to like pastor shame you and be like you were way more responsive with that than you were during the music, right? I'm not even going to go there, right? Some of you were like, Dr. Pepper, hallelujah. The question is why? A lot of those didn't actually have anything to do with a palate or taste. They're just opinion. And here's what I would submit to you. A lot of what we just passionately said we prefer is just because we are influenced. Through our life experiences, through the people around us, through the advertising that we have uh, drunk the Kool-Aid on, we've, we've landed on these preferences that are really strong, not necessarily through independent thought, but because we are constantly influenced. It is that invisible influence or those in, invisible influences that I want us to examine this morning as we come to the conclusion of our series, Fully Alive. So please grab your Bible if you would this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there is one underneath the seat in front of you. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, please let that be our gift to you today. Uh, we'd ask you to keep that. But uh, we always hold up our Bibles and say a creed together before we jump in. And if that's where you're at in your spiritual journey, then would you please join with us in that this morning? Let's declare this with the same energy we just did about Apple, right? Here, here we go. The Bible is the Word of God, and the truth of the Bible will change my life. So, Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Please turn to 1 John chapter 2. If you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you, it's page 9. 59, 1 John chapter 2. If you're new to the things of the Bible, if you find the book of Revelation at the end, just hang left a couple blocks and you will be in 1 John chapter 2. Now I'll tell you, we're not going to get to that text for several minutes. So go ahead and either scroll there or turn there and just hold your place for a minute. We're going to try to lay some groundwork. But before we jump in, I want to kind of summarize where we've been heading since Easter Sunday. We started with the words of Jesus in the gospel of John, not here in the the epistles of John, but the gospel of John chapter number 10. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. And in unbelievable contrast, Jesus says, but I came that you might have, that's the opposite of stealing, Life, that's the opposite of killing, abundantly, that's the opposite of tearing down, that's building up, that's flourishing, that's the opposite of being depleted. 
Jesus said, I came that you might have life. And what we've said is that's not just like some spiritual reality. That's not just some like church theology truth. We believe that the abundant life is available to us to live in or to use biblical language to, to walk in. And that contrast is found from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you were dead, the opposite of alive. You were dead in trespasses and sins in, what, in which you once walked. Right? It affected the way that we walked. We, we walked as though the thief had stolen from us and, and, and killed us and destroyed us. We were following the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil himself. That spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And then here's these glorious words in verse number four. But... God. So it's true that there, there was such a thing as death, but God. There's over 40 different uh, passages in the Bible that start with the phrase, but God, where he is turning reality on its head gloriously, praise his name. There's another 60 that say, but the Lord. As a matter of fact, our summer series this summer is going to be uh, just examining some of those but God passages This text says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Hallelujah. By grace, you have been saved. This this reality demands the question, why doesn't life always seem that way? Why does life not always seem like I'm walking in new life? Why, why does life not always feel very abundant? Why does it seem like life's far more of a struggle than a celebration? And the, the reason is because there's still this opposition. There's still thief or thieves that are seeking to rob us of experiencing, walking in this abundance. There are enemies of the soul throughout church history, theologians have acknowledged the enemies of the soul, the, the world, the flesh and the devil. The way we unpack that in a modern context as we kind of borrowed the words from an author named John Mark Comer, his book, Live No Lies. And we amended it a little bit to say this. What are the three enemies of the soul? Deceptive ideas that intersect with harmful desires that are normalized. In a sinful society, there's there's such a thing as deceptive ideas. We believe that's none other than the devil himself. We believe he's not in the little red suit with the pitchfork and whatever. No, there, there's there's a liar. He's the father of lies. He only has one weapon in his arsenal. It's to lie. He's only ever had one method. It's it's to spread this information. And those lies aren't spoken out into a vague universe. They're spoken to normal people. And we like stuff that isn't good for us. We desire things. Our flesh desires things that are harmful to us. We've spent a week uh, kind of unpacking what that looks like. If you're new to, to kind of the end of this series here, we'd encourage you to go back to our YouTube channel and, and catch up with those. This morning, we focus on how these, these harmful lies that, that my harmful flesh is like, sweet, I was hoping to hear that. We exist in a society, we exist in a culture that at least normalizes those things, if not actually celebrates them. It affirms the very things that are going to harm us. We're going to talk this morning about the world. And as we talk about the world, again, before we even read the text this morning, I want to make sure we define the world. Does everybody else? 
Is that the microphone on the uh, baptistry? Is that what that just was? That was awesome. I just thought, do I need to use the restroom? I heard the water. Okay, if you didn't hear that, I'm sorry. I just had a, a moment. Um, <laughs> we're, we're talking about the world. Okay. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to seek to define what is the world, and then we'll read our text, and we'll kind of unpack how does the world influence us. We're going to talk about how that's actually changing in our generation, because I think it's important that we recognize that the world looks different for a lot of us than it did when we were younger. And then we're going to end with some great hope. How do we respond to that? How do we walk in life in that? So let's talk about what is the world. When the Bible talks about the world, it often means one of three things. When the Bible says the world, number one, it might just mean the planet. When it says the world, it might mean the earth, the globe. Actually, sometimes it can even mean like the galaxies, but specifically it means like a celestial thing, right? And, and the Bible's never saying that the world, the planet is our enemy, right? As a matter of fact, the Bible talks about redemptive hope. Everything that is broken in the world is going to be restored to a greater glory than it's ever known. So he's not telling us that the planet is the problem. Sometimes when the Bible talks about the world, it means the people, the people who inhabit this planet, right? And the Bible's never telling us that people are a problem. You should really resent them. As a matter of fact, the most frequently commanded thing about people is to love them even when they're your enemies, Right? So it's not telling us that, that people who bear the image of God are our opponents. They are not the enemies of the soul. So when the scriptures talk about the world, it doesn't mean the people or the planet when it's talking about a negative light. It's often talking about what we would call today the culture. What we would call the culture. If you really want it to be alliterated and you need a P word, I can give you several. It's the principles and the priorities and the philosophies and the practices and the patterns that are all around us that constantly influence us. It's the value system that's constantly giving us information for good or for bad. Here's another way to say it. It's the other worldview. It's the other worldview. We've, we've said, okay, so if there's such a thing as an enemy and his weapon is untruth, then a biblical worldview is my weapon of truth. If my flesh likes things that are bad for me, then I need a worldview of truth that helps filter my feelings and make them subject themselves to truth. So I know my feelings. I'm just not influenced by my feelings. I want to be influenced by truth. And so in the same way, we would call the world, when it's used in a negative sense, it's the other worldview or the other worldviews altogether in one category, worldviews that aren't grounded in truth. Every civilization that's ever existed has existed within a culture. And within a culture that has not affirmed their worldview. John Mark Comer said, the world is what happens when Adam and Eve's sin goes viral and spreads throughout a society. You end up with the world. When personal sin becomes societally accepted, what we end up with is the world. We are constantly influenced by the world that we are in. There's no neutral moment. There's no neutral noise. We are influenced. Two weeks ago, when we talked about the flesh, I said the phrase, we wake up every day behind enemy lines in our own skin. And what I would say this morning is we wake up every day behind enemy lines in our own society. We wake up every day being influenced by the world. With that understanding and context, 
Look with me at 1 John chapter 2. We're just going to look at three verses, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world. Don't love this system of thought. Don't love the culture or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, it's from the world. And the reason that's such a big deal, verse 17, is because the world is passing away along with those desires we just mentioned. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. What is the world? It's the culture that influences us. How does it influence us? It's right here in verse number 16. Look again. How does the world influence us? Number one, the desires of the flesh. If you grew up in the King James tradition, uh, you memorize that. It's the lusts of the flesh. It's the harmful desires of the flesh, which we've already talked a lot about, right? What the world does is the world cheers those things on. Here's what that sounds like in our world today. You ready? If it feels good, do it. The world is cheering us on. To follow our feelings, which we spent a whole week discussing how harmful that can be. (laughs) They're cheerleading towards harm. Anything goes, so long as it feels right. That's the mantra of the world. That's the desires of the flesh. Number two is the desires of the eyes. And that doesn't say, if it feels good, do it. It says, if it looks good, take it. The desires of the eyes, the the world says, if it looks good to you, then you deserve it. This is the language of entitlement. If you see something and you think you want it, then you must deserve it. Do whatever it takes to get it. The Bible has a name for that, several names. One of those is covetousness, greed, right? Discontentment. If someone else has that thing that I see that I want... It calls it envy. It calls it jealousy. And all of those are harmful things. As a matter of fact, billions and billions of dollars are spent every year trying to feed and foster the desires of the eyes. Companies desperately want you to see something and think you deserve it and put it on a credit card. Right? And it's constant noise. It's constant influence, often subtle and in the background. And then the pride of life. The message of the world is if it feels good, do it. If it looks good, take it. And then it says, and who are you to tell me any different? That's the pride of life. The pride of life is the really mature sounding statement You're not the boss of me. Right? It says nobody can tell me what to do. And the human bent in all of us is towards the pride of life. We want to be like God. We want to go our own way. We want to go our own direction. We will always rebel against authority, even when that authority is good. It's in all of us. And what the culture is literally cheering us on, those harmful directions. In subtle ways, through the music we listen to and the movies that we watch, these these worldview systems. If it feels good, do it. If it looks good, take it. And who is anybody else to tell you any different? Quoting again this morning from Comer, he said, Much of what we call culture, or the arts 
entertainment, economics, politics, or the Western way of life. Jesus and his followers called the world, and they saw the world as an enemy of the soul. And if that sounds like really old school and I should be wearing a three-piece suit and like screaming and spitting right now, right? Like I grew up under the old school preaching where every single Sunday, it didn't matter what the text was about, we were going to preach about the world. That's worldly, right? And then they would talk about like some random thing that you're like, I don't even think the world cares about that. You know, everything was all about the world. Every conversation. And what we've done in our generation is we've so swung the pendulum the other direction that we almost never talk about the fact that we exist in a society that is not for us. It is not for our good. It does not want us to be fully alive. We've overcorrected in this unhealthy way to where now when we talk about an oppositional culture, we sound like crazy people. Sound like we're... The other end of the spectrum. And so for just a few moments, what I want to do is talk about three shifts that we've watched in our generation. That I think is really important for us to notice this morning. As followers of Jesus, we exist in the United States of America in a rapidly changing moment. I know retro is all the rage today, but there's some brand new stuff happening right here, right now in our society that we've not seen in our lifetime. Specifically, if you're over the age of 30 today, you've watched a shift. And maybe it was so subtle when you were younger, you missed it. For sure, if you're over 35, you've noticed some changes. Number one, the shift as the follower of Jesus from the majority to the minority. From the majority to the minority. By the way, these three shifts, I want you to notice since the pandemic and its effect on our culture... These things have not slowed down. They've increased in speed. What we're seeing is not just that church attendance is in decline in the United States of America. It's far more than church attendance. There's an organization called the Barna Group. Maybe you've never heard of the Barna Group, but literally what they do for a living is, is track data and do research. The Barna Group has, has coined a phrase called resilient disciples. Because unfortunately, the word Christian has become pretty polluted in our culture to mean a lot of different things. And so they they coined the phrase resilient disciples, which is a pretty low bar. It simply means I believe the teachings of Jesus. I believe the word of God. I believe Jesus was born of a virgin. And I actually like walk with him in a personal relationship. They call those resilient disciples. And, and here's why that's important. According to the Barna Group today in the United States of America, young adults that classify themselves as resilient disciples is less than 10% of the population. Less than 10% of our future leaders, influencers, and parents consider themselves resilient disciples. That's just reality. And I don't mean that the church is an ethnic minority. That's a different thing. We're what sociologists would call a cognitive minority, meaning the way we think is no longer widely accepted. The way we see the world, you could call us a worldview minority. Our value system, our practices, our social norms, our sexual ethics are increasingly at odds with the world around us. When I grew up, when I was little, uh, my parents would talk about Jerry Falwell's organization called the Moral Majority, founder of Liberty University. You guys remember the Moral Majority is a political activist group for uh, conservative faith. And I just got to tell you, we are a long way 
from the moral majority today. That's just reality. Hang with me. Another shift in the culture, number two, is, is the people of Jesus have gone from a place of honor to a place of shame. A few weeks ago, uh, we were in Washington, D.C. at the Museum of the Bible, and some of us in this room, we did a, a virtual reality tour that flew through Washington, D.C. and would zoom on some of the most important documents and monuments around Washington, D.C. that have God's Word inscribed on them or written on them. God's Word's all over the most important places in the city. Some of our 8th graders that have been to New York City on uh, our trip here at Temple Christian School, you've seen God's Word is all over that city. I'll be honest, I don't live under the notion that all of our founding fathers were evangelical Christians but they at least respected God's word. I'm under no illusion that they believed everything that I believe, but we were founded on a principle that honored God's word. It was respected. And many of our government leaders were Christians. The Ivy League schools all started not as Christian universities. They started as seminaries training pastors to preach God's word with theological accuracy. The places that most degrade and mock truth today. Pastors used to be respected in the culture and people used to respect the church. It's different. And the amazing thing today is that the church is actually now seen as the problem, not a part of the solution. Our worldview is considered to be the problem. The, the societies Profound reversal on what is sexual ethics, what is human sexuality, what is gender, what is the life of an unborn. We are now considered the rebels that have the marginalized view that's just crazy train. We're the rebels. The third shift we've seen in our generation is from a place of tolerance to now a place of hostility. Here's what I mean by that. Much of the culture no longer sees us as different. They now see us as dangerous. Much of the culture now sees us not as different, but as dangerous. Not just weird, but something that threatens the goodness and wholeness of culture. You depressed yet? We're going to end hopeful. Hang in there. Here's what I would say to you. I told you that all of this was new and wasn't retro. But I need to define new. I would submit to you that what many of us experienced in our childhood, that was actually what was rare. To exist in a country where faith was so openly allowed and at least tolerated, that was actually the weird moment in history. For 2,000 years, the followers of Christ have been seen through the lenses of hostility, have been seen as a minority, and have been seen as an outcast. In the Gospel of John, Jesus invites his followers to abide in him. He says, when we do, we will have fullness of joy. Our joy will be complete when we abide in him. And in the same breath, he says this, John 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, welcome to the party. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you're not out of the the world, because I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. 
I mean, doesn't that just kind of make sense? We're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Thanks, Jesus. Verse 20, remember the word I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. That's just reality. We have a hostile relationship with the culture. Maybe the old school pastor in the three-piece suit screaming at the top of his lungs was more right than we like to think. And the reason I think that's an important awareness is I think some of us are shocked in this moment and we think, what has changed? Why aren't we the, my, uh, the majority anymore? Why don't politicians sound like me anymore? Listen, welcome to history. Church history is full of the people of God being the outcasts, but standing strong lovingly in our faith and existing as a light in a dark place. This actually is helping us figure out what we do believe and what is worth standing for. This can actually be good for us. And so we come back to the text this morning to ask this question. How do I respond in a culture that sees me as the problem? How do I exist in a culture that sees my worldview as dangerous? And not just how do we exist. How do we thrive? If all of that negative stuff is true, and yet we're called to experience abundance of life. How does that happen? Like, how do we, like, boots on the ground experience in reality the abundant life in an oppositional world? I want to give you three thoughts. Number one, the abundant life is found in holy affections. This is actually not a culture war. This is actually a worship war. And it starts with our hearts. Look again at verse number 15. Do not love the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. This is a love conversation. This is an affection conversation. This is about a reorienting of our hearts around something better. I fight against the love of the world by loving something better. Come on, somebody. When I tell myself not to love something, that's usually not super helpful, right? Don't think about, you fill in the blank, and then you'll start thinking about that. The primary message is not don't love the world. It's let's fall in love with a worthy God. Like let's love him more than our lesser loves. Love something greater. Let's be aware of our affection. Let's do the things that foster healthy affections. Namely, what we just referenced in John 15. By abiding. Like, let's just walk with God while we exist in this culture. Mark Batterson says, if you don't love God, it's because you're not walking with God. Because you cannot walk with him and not fall in love with him. He's that good. And he's that glorious. If we'll abide in him, if we'll turn our attention towards him. Uh, John Tyson, a pastor in Times Square in New York City, he said this, attention leads to adoration. For good or for bad, attention leads to adoration. Whatever I focus my life around is going to stir my heart. And that's either towards harmful things or towards holy things, right? If I'm completely giving my attention away to worldly things, I'm probably going to end up adopting a worldly value system, right? It's that simple. Whatever has my attention will get my adoration 100% of the time. Whatever has my mind will get my heart. 
And the reason that's important is because in this passage, if you just look a couple verses later, verse 28, John the Apostle says this, Little children, abide in Him. Abide in Him so that when He appears, and I do believe He will appear, and even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. When He appears, we'll have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame as coming because we've already been abiding with Him. Number two, we exist in this culture with abundance in life by abiding in Jesus and fostering our affections for Him. And number two, in a present awareness of eternal realities. A present right here awareness of the eternal. Like how do I exist in a world that's being so loud? By focusing on the next world that's already active and alive and well. By focusing on another kingdom, by setting my heart towards another kingdom. Verse 17 says this world is passing away. It is temporary. Why would I give my heart away to what doesn't last? I want to challenge you this morning. Let's love what lasts. Let's love what's going to make it. The things of this world take our hearts and then instantly disappoint us, right? Like, oh, I got this house. I'm so excited about this house. And 15 minutes later, something breaks in the house, right? Can I get a witness? Right? You're like, oh, this car is great. Oh, wait, I have to pay for fuel? Oh, no. And then it breaks down. Becomes a money pit, right? We get so excited about these temporary things only to find that they wear out and they're disappointing. But when I set my heart towards what lasts forever, I want you to hear me right now. It creates a holy confidence. There's a holy boldness when I'm focused on what's eternal. Like there's, a, there's a holy boldness that comes when I'm thinking about what can never be taken from me. So look again at verse 28 here in the text. Abide in him so that when he appears, that eternal reality is coming. He will appear. I will stand before him. But man, when I'm abiding in him, I can have confidence and not shrink back in shame. There's a holy confidence that, that comes with walking with God. And I believe today the church of Jesus Christ desperately needs a dose of confidence. Somehow we are, are, are so offended when people don't endorse our way of life that we're no longer the light. We're intimidated by the darkness. We need some holy backbone that says, listen, the eternal is reality. And I can stand here in the face of the temporary without their affirmation or their affirming and go, no, what are you talking Like, there's coming a day where every single culture that's ever existed will bow the knee and every tongue that's ever moved or existed will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And what I'm doing today is I'm just pre-bowing the knee and I'm just pre-confessing that He's King, He's Lord, and He's God. And I don't need anybody else to tell me that I'm okay to do that. If we can't be okay with being weird, how will we ever endure persecution if it comes? If we can't handle a comedian who mocks our faith without being offended, if we can't handle a politician who doesn't see life the way we see life, saying out loud that he doesn't see life the way we see life, and we're like, I'm so offended at this guy. Where's our backbone? Where's our perspective of the eternal? I have come to a conclusion at age 45, I'm never going to fit in in this world. 
And I am completely okay with that. I don't need anything from this world. I've come to the conclusion, I'm never going to be cool. Whatever, man. I'm not going to intentionally try to be a dork for Jesus. Some of us are raised that way, right? Like, make sure you're as big of a goober as possible. God will be pleased with you. That's not what we're calling you to be. But I don't need the world to be like, yeah, Jesus is sexy, bro. What? No. I don't need the world's affirmation. I think my worldview, I, I think, in my lifetime, will never be broadly respected or liked or admired. And that's okay. It's okay. Not like in an arrogant, I don't care what you think of me, condescending kind of way, but like in a, no, I really don't care what you think of me. Because I'm not going to stand before the throne of the culture one day. I'm going to stand before the throne of the king one day. So I want to orient my affections towards him and maintain a perspective that sees the eternal right here smack dab in the middle of the temporary. We can be okay with being weird. And I just got to say this lovingly um, from a place of compassion. Listen, parents, it's okay for your teenagers to think that you are weird and out of touch. Keep proclaiming the kingdom of God over them. You are weird and out of touch. Do you really want to fit in? Like if you watched reality? No, it's okay. Number three, abundant life is found in healthy community. This letter is written not to a person. It's written to the people of God. We exist in this oppositional world belonging to another little world that's within this world. It's called the body of Christ. It's how we do life together. I believe that it is impossible to experience the abundant life alone. I mean, I think God can manifest his grace, like if you're alone on an island or whatever, but I think his prescription for what full flourishing looks like always involves the one another's. As a matter of fact, that's the theme of all of 1 John. If you've read 1 John, the central theme of 1 John is not don't love the world, it's love people. It's all throughout this little letter. As a matter of fact, in 1 John 3.11, this is the message you've heard from the beginning. Like we, You've been hearing this from the beginning. Love one another. This is how we resist the world. It's fostering healthy relationships, and that requires discipline. And, and I love that we're landing on this as we come to the end of a school year. And you know, Mother's Day is always this kind of traditional, uh, transitional rather, holiday. And, and what I would say is this. You're probably going to withdraw some this summer and go on vacation. I'm excited for you. Listen, we are leaving before the sun comes up after graduation to go to the beach. I feel you. I'm already there, right? But don't isolate. You Go on vacation, but don't withdraw from the people of God this summer. We still need each other, right? We don't need to check out of the one another's. Maybe we actually need to do more of, hey, can we meet for coffee? Hey, why don't you come over? We're going to grill out in the back porch. Hey, listen, let's foster community among the people of God because that's how we experience what it is to be fully alive in the midst of a broken world. Again, quoting from John Tyson, what he calls the church he calls the church a beautiful resistance. The body of Christ is a beautiful resistance in a world that is rebelling against God. 
as, as we look at this whole idea that, that when we follow Jesus together and not alone, then together we can help discern Jesus' truth from the enemy's lies, his deceptive ideas. When we're doing life together, then we can help one another confront the harmful desires of our flesh. And when we walk together, we can form a community of deep relationships that is the counterculture to the culture. This is how we resist the gravitational pull of the three enemies of the soul. When I'm, when I'm doing the discipline, the habits, the way of Jesus that foster affections for the Heavenly Father, that reorient my heart towards the eternal and that deepen relationships with the people of God around me, this is how we do life. I want to have people in my life who will hear me out when I'm struggling, when I'm doubting, when I'm worried, when I'm stressing, when I'm trying to control things I never had a single second of control over. I want, I want people in my life who will hear me out, nod their head, and care about all the things that I'm feeling. And I want them to listen well. And then I want people in my life who will say, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we've been saved. So what I'm facing doesn't have to be my only reality. And what I'm feeling doesn't have to be my only reality. And what I'm fretting about doesn't have to be my only reality. My faith can be my greater reality that is fostered in healthy relationships deepening a connection with the Heavenly Father and reorienting my heart towards what is eternal. On this Mother's Day, I would say that begins by knowing that you have a relationship with God through Jesus. And I would ask this with you. Maybe the only reason you're here today is because Mom guilt-chipped you into coming today. Every Mother's Day, all across the country, there are people who sit in church because Mom straight-up guilt-chipped them. And that's cool. We're glad that you're here today. Even if she was like, this is the only gift I want. By the way, she did not mean that. Please tell me you bought her something. Or, or whether you're here today because you're like, no, man, I, I'm just struggling today. I'm here because I feel like I'm drowning in a season. Or maybe you're here today because you said, I'm just really convinced there's something better than doing this thing on my own. Or maybe you're somewhere in, be- in between all of those. The answer is the same. Whatever your motive of walking in here, the same hope is available to you today in the person of Jesus. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song about his resurrection life and how that changes our hope for tomorrow. And as we sing that song, there's going to be some men and women in the prayer room in the back. If you're worshiping online with us, you can text pray FW to 94000. And we'd love to have a conversation with you. Because we just think at the end of the day, if we're going to really flourish, if we're really going to experience full life in this world, we need to have those difficult conversations. We need the prayers of one another and the encouragement of one another. And we want you to know we're here for the real stuff today.